This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snowett. for downloading the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. This is Series 2, Episode 60. I'm Rob Snow White. This is Part 2 of Speaking with Richard Franklin. Richard's first podcast was the most downloaded Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast of all time. I happen to be up in northern Jersey at the shore. My cousin lives two blocks away from Richard, and I was invited over there to spend an afternoon discussing fly fishing I knew I'd be seeing Richard. I didn't know if we would have the time to sit down and discuss fly fishing to get a podcast, but we made time, and I'm very thankful for Richard for inviting me over to his house and for sharing all of his great stories with me, and now I get to share them with you, and I'm hoping that we will continue to have these conversations with Richard because as the downloads show, it is an absolute gem of an experience to hear Richard speak. This episode is brought to you by FlyingTheFlats.com, a coastal lifestyle brand with its roots anchored deep in the pluff mud flats of Charleston, South Carolina. It is a soft good apparel company, and these are the clothes that I prefer to wear when I'm guiding or just out and about. And I hope you appreciate 
them sponsoring this podcast. So please go to flyingtheflats.com. Check out some of the soft goods. And there's Dr. Jones barking. He says you should go too. And sit back, relax. We're going to discuss all things finding solitude in fly fishing, the technology of polarized lenses, what you get out of purchasing a high-end rod, and much more. Thank you for downloading this podcast. And Richard, again, thank you for taking the time out to tell me your stories. All right, Richard, this is part two of hearing stories about your life in fly fishing. What are we going to talk about today? Today, I was supposed to be fishing on the west branch of the Delaware River. However, Jeff White at the Delaware River Club told me this morning that because of heavy thunderstorms that they had there, which we had down here on the Jersey Shore as well, the river went from a nice, weightable, clear 500 CFS to a smoky 900 CFS and still rising. He said, unless you want to come up and fish streamers, which I don't, stay, stay, relax, and come up during a dry fly day on another occasion. So instead of fishing today, I'm talking to Rob Snow White about some observations uh, that occurred to me during my annual trip to Idaho and Montana from mid-June to mid-July uh, at this point a month ago. I was joined, as I have been for many years, by my friend Jay Spazov from Portland, Oregon. I basically fly to Portland, and he and I drive in his Tahoe with all our camping gear uh, back out. And our first stop was the Henry's Fork. And this was around the 16th of July, uh, right after the opening, uh, excuse me, of June, rather. So right after the opening of the Railroad Ranch Harriman State Park section. And we uh, were expecting high water everywhere since throughout the Rocky Mountain West, 189% of snowpack occurred this past winter, which we haven't seen in years. Uh, but folks on the fork were complaining the river was too low, this being a function of holding water back in the Island Park Reservoir for future uh, seed potato growing later in the summer. Uh, that's fine. It made it nice and weightable, and as the Henry's Fork should, it had, besides some PMDs, it had western green drakes, and we had surprisingly good fishing. However, and this is not unusual for the Henry's Fork, which has been a popular and therefore crowded river since I began fishing there in the, in the, in the mid-70s, um, we found plenty of places to fish, but you said hello to a lot of people walking along the bank, whether you were doing the walking and they were sitting there waiting for a fish to rise, or you were and they came by. The river has got plenty of fishermen there, a hardcore, serious group, and uh, a lot of great guys. Some of them we encountered I've known for many years just from fishing this river, but solitude is not something one achieves on the Henry's Fork easily. And that's true, I think, of all the great Blue Ribbon Rivers, wherever you are, here certainly on the Delaware and my home water, um, it's full of boats. In fact, uh, during Hendrickson's this past early May, we floated the river, stayed for the evening spinnerfall, didn't get 
to the boat ramp until o dark thirty and then waited in line for half an hour or so because there were so many boats ahead of us and a few more behind us. There were so many people floating the river, both professional guides and uh, and private fishermen, and the river was high, and a boat was the way to go um, so solitude and famous rivers be it the Delaware, the Henry's Fork, the Madison, the Missouri. These rivers have gotten more and more crowded. In fact, I think their popularity is accelerating. There was a time not that long ago when there were very few fishermen on these rivers. Now, in the 80s, we had a lot of uh, burgeoning specialty fly fishing publications, and they they enjoyed running exposés on uh, the hot new destination river and spilling the beans on what was a little bit secretive, but these are, these of course, rivers that have highways and railroad tracks next to them, so how secretive can they be? And now we have the internet where they just make up beans. You don't have to spill them. They, they just make it up. And there's no checks and balances. That's fine, too. I participated in that myself. Uh, what is a man to do? A fisherman willing to do a little bit of walking can always find an interesting fish in some hidden lie against a bank or in a current scene. And other fishermen almost always will respect that you are there and they'll, they won't encroach on your, on your fish. I mean, there are exceptions to that because there are some greenhorns around that just don't know any better, but they learn. And being that we have the, here in America, the greatness of public water and public access, which is a rare thing. You don't find this in uh, Europe or Argentina, where most rivers are private access only. Uh, so we're very fortunate here. But it means that just because I have fished some river for decades, I get no special rights or privileges. A guy, uh, some pilgrim who's just newly outfitted with new waders, rods, and reel, has equal rights to me to fish these same spots and thank no, goodness for that. No respect for the elders, but they might not know you've been, you're the elder with all the knowledge. They should be watching you. Uh, you should be doing And that. maybe sometimes they are. I don't know because I'm, when I'm fishing, I'm focused on the environment around me and not what other fishermen are doing. Uh, I love talking to other fishermen about tackle and techniques. But um, when you're actually fishing, you kind of sometimes don't even remember, well, that's not really true. I know which rod and reel I'm using, but I'm not focusing on that like I might be when I'm comparing these things. Um, I'm focused on, okay, if a mink runs along the bank or a shadow of a bald eagle crosses my water, I'll look up and take a look. I'm not oblivious to the world around me, but, but the fishermen are there. And I accept, even embrace it. As I love that people love fly fishing, I understand. I can't imagine someone who doesn't love it. But um, uh, I know there are people that could care less, but they're not the ones I meet on these rivers. The ones I meet on the rivers are people that have fallen in love with fly fishing and 
and I share their passion. And I remember on the Missouri, uh, before it became popular, and there's a good reason why it wasn't popular, because until we started getting the drier, hotter seasons in the mid-80s or so, when I would drive along the Missouri going someplace, so I used to fish the Sun River and stuff over in that area, it never occurred to me the Missouri was trout stream. It would be flowing at 18, 22,000 CFS. It looked to me like it should have uh, steam-powered paddle wheel river boats with, with, with gamblers on them. Uh, this is legendary on the, in this watershed. Uh, it didn't look like a trout stream. You couldn't have waited it. In fact, even when we started fishing it in the mid-'80s, um, we would go there last. We'd go there in the middle of July because it would be too high to wade. And uh, would finally come down and you'd get your mayfly hatches in the, in the middle of July. Now I go there in the middle of June, and very often it's already a wadeable 4,000 CFS or something like that. Uh, there's just so much less water there than there used to be, and that's true everywhere in the West. But this year was an exception, and it was, uh, when I arrived there, it was around 8,000 CFS, which is too high for me to wade, so we rented a drift boat and floated. Finally, it came down a little bit. It, was, it never came down while I was there to a comfortable wading level, but certainly there were places where we could wade and, and did, but we were also there during the 4th of July. It was kind of fun good place to be for that holiday and so besides the few waiting anglers and all the professional guides with their boats and the private anglers with their various watercraft which included paddle boards and inner tubes sometimes the beer would have its own inner tube it was the 4th of July the river was pretty darn crowded does that put the fish down? Oh, you know, if fish didn't eat because uh, some disturbance occurred that, that spooked them for the moment, they'd starve to death. There'd be bird shadow. and They are particularly sensitive to bird shadows because there are osprey and pelican and all kinds of birds that prey on them. But trout are an ancient creature. Um, actually, Salmonidae are very primitive fish, and they've been around fairly unchanged for a long time because they were perfect a long time ago, and they are a remarkably hydrodynamic fish that's ideally suited to life in, in rivers, and of course they were distributed by glaciers, that's why we have resident, non-migratory fish of all, all trouts and salmons have their landlocked versions, as well as their isolated versions, we, we call our isolated rainbows cutthroat here. Uh, we only have a limited genetic strain of brown trout in North America, but where they're native in Europe and Eurasia, like cutthroat, there's infinite variations of all different sizes and color patterns and characteristics. Um, but their genetic memory goes back to when there were some very serious predators that flew above them, you know, kinds of flying pterodactyls. And they were, their genetic memory includes this. Their brain is the size of a grain of rice. So this is not a cognitive process, um, but instinct plays a big role in how trout behave. So they get spooked very easily, but 10 minutes later they're feeding again. Otherwise they'd starve to death because they're living in cold flowing water, 
And if they're not, and each morsel they eat is a relatively low-calorie thing, unless they happen to get a crayfish or a minnow or something like that. So they have to continually eat because they're burning calories just holding steady in the current. So no, I, uh, uh, we all think that our trout are more educated today, and it, it is marvelous that they really can outwit us humans and do often, um, but it's not based on uh, some learning or intelligence. It's, it's, uh, they're just attuned to their instincts. The interesting thing is, if you're a guy like me with a gray beard, you remember having this relative solitude on all these rivers. When I first started fishing the Missouri, about 10 or 12 guys would be fishing the entire Craig area on a given day. And we'd all get together on a, a wooden porch uh, facing the railroad tracks in the town of Craig. It's no longer there. Um, to discuss the day's fishing. Everybody would bring their own beers with them. Now, the number of fishermen fishing there, even if there was a big porch, is multiplied by a hundred, maybe a few hundred times. How many fly shops were there back? In 1989, the Missouri River Trout Shop opened in the town of Craig, which at that time had a single-lane bridge, this porch with a half-barrel of prickly pear growing on it, next to the porch, and they occupied the building where this porch was. They had a little fly shop. There was no cafe. There was no stop sign, traffic light, anything in town. Uh, And today it hasn't changed that much. We've got a new two-lane bridge, and there are three fly shops in town, but there's still no traffic light, and you can still walk down the middle of the street as long as you don't get run over by a guy with a towing his drift boat or something like that. But it's still a friendly little uh, it's a friendly little drinking town with a serious fishing problem. And it's still a nice place to be. And this year uh, it was so crowded that we couldn't find a campsite in any of our usual locations. We wound up camped at the downtown Craig boat ramp camp loop. And a little public spot, a dozen sites in it or so. Very social, since you got campsites cheek to jowl next to one another. And uh, so, you know, I'm not going to tell you what fraction of fishermen that were fishing the river were in this campsite. It was still minuscule. The campsite was full. There were no no site. We were lucky to get a site there. A lot of $500 coolers hanging out. And- you know, we have a we're a tent camp operation, Jay and I. And we have this fabulous uh, canvas wall tent with a screened-in porch so we can escape the mosquitoes and stuff like that. But And there were a couple of other tenters there, but most people there had some kind of elaborate mobile home. Um, that's fine. I understand that. I'm just old school. What I wanted to say is that having neighbors right next to you and having to hunt for a fish in a side channel to to not get run over by a flotilla is part of modern fishing and if you can't accept that you got a problem I do accept it but I can't have it as my exclusive angling experience to get to the Missouri or any other famous river in the United States of America, 
you're driving along a road. Very often there's a creek flowing next to the road, or you go over a bridge over a stream. All these big rivers have tributaries and headwaters. And there are famous headwater streams, like the ones for the uh, Missouri and Yellowstone Park, like the Gibbon and the Firehole, that create the Madison where they come together. Uh, and those, of course, are famous and have been fished since the 1800s. But there is many an unsung headwater creek that whose names are just not part of the angling lexicon. But there's fish in them. It's like going to watch a minor league baseball team. You're not going for the all-stars. You might not know the team and all the players, but you're having a good time. That's correct. The beer is just as cold at a minor league park in Binghamton, New York, as it is at, at City Field or... Where the, where yeah, that stadium. Well, the Nationals uh, Stadium, of course, that place is going to be super crowded pretty soon because they're going to be in the World Series, I have a feeling. That's the plan. Um... Well, we don't get the, any sports channels, though, so I don't know. Well, the Dodgers have ideas about this, too, but this is not... And we could talk about baseball players that fish, and there are some, but that's a separate podcast. Um, uh, anyway, there's all these little creeks. Now, remember, I mentioned the 4th of July on the Missouri. Well, one of the guys that was camped in this crowded campsite with us, he and I, some years ago, on the 4th of July, decided we didn't want to be part of the, the fireworks scene. And so we decided we were going to drive some local access gravel roads along a secondary river, see if we can find a place to go fishing in, uh, out, uh, out of the limelight. Boat Trader, America's largest boating marketplace, offering easy financing and over 100,000 boat listings to choose from. Sell, find, and finance new or used boats on America's largest boating marketplace. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Well, we weren't really successful, uh... It was just one big ranch after another, and we just couldn't find what we were looking for. But at some point, right there along the side of this, this local road, there was an irrigation ditch. And it was, uh, it was an unusually long and wide irrigation ditch. And we couldn't help but notice, when we were driving slowly on the, on the car, because it's a gravel road, that there was flowering elodea along its, its banks. We pulled over to take a look, seeing what do you know? It was late in the afternoon, there were some PMDs on the water. And then it turns out that some of them were disappearing into the mouths of some pretty darn decent looking brown trout in a roadside irrigation ditch, which we coined uh, Independence Day Ditch. Now, it's not going to give you the quality angling experience of the Missouri or the Henry's Fork, but it just is symbolic of the fact that in trout country, pretty much every stream has fish in it. How good the hatches will be, what kind of fish size or population there is, is going to vary because a lot of these smaller streams really do function agriculturally. They have water drawn out of them for irrigation, cattle, often water directly in the stream without being fenced out and stuff like that. So there's some, sometimes there's degradation to some of these streams. Sometimes they're as pristine as can be. And there's an enormous quality of experience that could be had in them. Now, 
you're not going to hear me mention any any of their names specifically uh, because a fisherman just doesn't do that. And I remember as a as a young greenhorn myself with a couple of college buddies driving from New York State to Montana. The three of us took a circuitous route where we zigzagged from national to provincial to state park along the U.S.-Canada border from New York to uh, ultimately to Banff from Waterton down into Glacier in Montana. Was, I think it took us uh, 6,000 miles to get to Montana. And we caught northern pike and smallmouth bass, as well as trout. We, we, my dog chased a black bear into a, into a tree in the middle of our camp. We had a moose in camp. We had lots of adventures. We were so bitten by black fly, moose noir in Canada, that the waitresses wouldn't even flirt with us. I mean, it, was, it was an adventurous trip. But I had read Ernest Hemingway's story, The Big Two-Hearted River. And so we, with a case of Canadian Labatt's Bleu along with us, we crossed into the United States in uh, up in Peninsula, Michigan, and sought out this, this storied river. Surrounded by about a zillion mosquitoes, the only fish we caught were little silvery steelhead smolt, never any of the fine big trout that Hemingway described. And it was only later that I learned that this is not where he fished. He fished some other river in the UP, but he liked the name of the Big Two-Hearted, and he wanted to disguise where he had actually had this quality fishing. So the story got this name. And the lesson to be learned here, and it's our responsibility as anglers today, that it's fine to talk about the Missouri River, the mother of all trout rivers. But if there's some little tributary creek to the Missouri that's got nobody parked on it, it's got a nice, a nice meadowy, bendy flow in it, and there's, an, and there's a modest hatch that comes off, and you can find a few wild fish there. You don't, you don't mention its name. Oh, you could call it, I guess I could call it the Big Two-Hearted, even though that would, wouldn't fool many people. But I don't call it anything. And the point I'm going to make is that we all love fishing the famous rivers, and that's really where you're going to find the biggest trout. And the average trout in the Missouri is 17 to 19-inch rainbow, and they're bigger ones particularly the Browns. What we do is we have two sets of tackle. We'll use nice, crisp nine-foot, five- and six-weights on these big rivers. And then we'll have eight-and-a-half-foot, four- and five-weights that we'll use on these little rivers. And we dedicate part of every trip to driving some backcountry byway that doesn't have a tourist attraction on it and very often all we'll find is Rocky Mountain scenery and a few pronghorn antelope and deer and lots of cows that's fine sometimes we'll stop on a bridge look down and there'll be a nice trout finning below the bridge so there are hidden gems everywhere because no river starts as a big river. Well, every river's got these headwater and tributary streams 
and we are maybe are able to sustain the modern day crowds of fly fishermen because we know that tomorrow we're going to go see if we can find PMDs on the Big Two Hearted River. All right. Anything else you want to talk about today? Uh, Tell me about a day. What's the day like when you're out there? Oh. Like, what time do you get up? Breakfast? Okay. Any, any like, daily rituals you guys have developed over all these years? Lots. Because a, a, a camping, a fishing camping trip is not all about catching fish, which we don't eat anyway. Uh, Jay, also known as Mr. Breakfast, uh, usually gets up around 6.30 and gets a pot of water boiling so we can French press some coffee. And uh, if I'm lucky, besides a good hot cup of coffee, and I do keep a glass bottle of half and half in our cooler so the cardboard container won't fall apart, uh, Sometimes he's in the mood to boil and fry up some potatoes and hen's eggs. And we like to stop in Ennis at the butcher shop there and get their home smoked bacon. Nice thick cut, and they put it in uh, a vacuum-sealed bags so we can easily keep it in the cooler. And that's a nice way to start off the day. And there's rarely, we're there too early for trichos usually, and there's rarely uh, a mayfly hatch until... Nine, often ten o'clock in the morning. So there's no rush to can have a nice. There's always things to do in the morning, and having a nice, good strong cup of coffee, which is hard to get out west. People make thin coffee in cafes in the west. I wondered why are they cheap with the coffee, and a waitress explained to me, it's that we drink coffee all day long, and if we made it as strong as you do in New York and Seattle. We'll be wired all the time. So we make it thin so we can drink a lot of it. We don't. We make it strong. And uh, starting off the day with good coffee and, uh, and a nice breakfast, even if it's fruit and granola or something like that, is fine too. Uh, you know, it gets you prepared to, uh, to get into your waders. Um, we will fish until the morning hatch ends, which can be... Sometimes it's very brief. Sometimes it'll go into 1 o'clock in the afternoon. But it's rare. Well, on the Henry's Fork, we get these uh, femorella flavolina that like to come off in the middle of the afternoon. So sometimes you have to stay out there. But very often we're done by 1 o'clock and we'll have some sort of a snack, peanut butter and jelly or whatever, and retire to camp and refurbish our leaders, and uh, with our new screened-in vestibule and our big tent, we can even tie flies uh, out of the breeze if we want. And uh, sometimes we've got to run to town to, to buy stuff for the grill. We usually have three days' worth of dinners in, in, in our cooler at any given time. And uh, uh, so we may have to go to Cascade or even into Helena to go to a, a market to get some provisions. And uh, we will have cocktails around four or five. Uh, Jay made breakfast. I'll do something on the grill. 
but which often in our case includes twice uh, twice fried crinkle cut Idaho potato french fries. So a common meal for us, which might also include a couple of handfuls of lettuce. I thought you'd say a couple handfuls of scotch. Well, we um, we do have Scottish whiskey in moderation uh, before dinner every day. We want to be able to wade without drowning ourselves, you know, in the after dinner. But we'll we'll have a couple of whiskeys uh, uh, while we prepare French fries and a, perhaps a couple of ribeye steaks. And um, by the time we're done and cleaned up. We'll often get into waiters in camp, 6.30, 7 o'clock, and uh, spend the evening on the river. Spinner Falls, evening caddis. If nothing's happening, we've had a nice walk. If something's happening, we can be out till old dark 30. And it gets dark fairly late out west. Stays There's still a glimmer of light, 11 o'clock. Wow. You know, afterglow. I wish that there was such a thing as a partially polarized eyeglass that was almost clear, or just, you know, a hint of yellow or amber to give... You have to have, you know, like Venetian blinds have to have some opacity to them, or they're not going to block the light from coming in the window, and the polarizing film is, is analogous to right. that. It's got to have some tint to it. I want to try the new Costa low light lenses. I'm going to send in my plastic sunrise yellows. Yes, I know they have those. I I regret that they're available only in CR39 plastic. I I prefer real glass. Oh, they're not. Oh, yeah. I don't do plastic lenses. They uh, the plastic lenses scratch uh, for me too light. uh, uh, Scratch too easily, and as a photographer who understands a bit about optics. I just, I know they're acceptable, uh, but there's too much distortion. In fact, if you take any high-quality plastic polarized lens from any of the makers and rotate it against a glass one, the glass one, you can, you know, it turns dark when you, when you oppose uh, at 90 degrees to mm-hmm. polarized lenses. Uh, you can see the glass ones are uniform, and the plastic ones are blotchy in appearance because of the irregularity of, they're molded. And the film is molded in there, as opposed to the glass ones, where it's two wafers of glass uh, that have been ground and have the film sandwiched between them. So that's a much purer thing. And I like to say it this way. If the highest indexing plastic was almost as good as glass, don't you think that Nikon and Canon, in their big zoom lenses with internal elements that are not going to get scratched, would use especially the, uh, the asymmetrical elements. Don't you think they would use uh, plastic for lightweight? But they don't because it's just not close. Having said that, a plastic polarized lens is still a better thing than no polarized glasses to begin with. you got to have... I, I have said it a million times, I think that your polarized eyewear is one of the single most critical pieces of fishing tech. I'd rather have great glasses so I can see the fish and see my fly and see everything that's going on with a mediocre rod and reel than have the best rod and reel in the world with mediocre glasses. Um, the glasses come for it. Not, not that I don't want the, the best rod and reel, too. I do. 
but uh, the glasses are real important. Now, speaking of photography, what makes a good photograph of fly fishing? So I showed you the jacket I'm looking at for my new wading jacket, and it's kind of camouflaged. And you said I would not show up in a picture. Now, back in the day when I shot professionally for many magazines and the New York Times and, and books, I would want my angling subject, I want him to be dressed authentically, but I want, him, I want some little bit of contrast between him and my otherwise blue and green environment that he's in. I didn't make people wear a red shirt. They felt like it, I didn't mind. Uh, I didn't like blue. Blue is a bad color. Uh, the human eye doesn't focus blue very well, so blue is uh, one of those vague colors in photography. Today, I don't really care because I'm not. I'm more shooting to record my experience, and I mean, I still do carry a, a DSLR and a semi-waterproof thing on my chest. Um, I can't, even though I'm retired as a photographer, so to speak. I mean, if you want to buy something, call me. Um, but uh, I, I still can't take a picture with a s tiny censored point-and-shoot or worse yet a cell phone. Uh, I still need a real camera. But uh, So today I just want you to be your natural self and I'm not going to encourage you to wear some bright color. Uh, but a fishing photograph, and, I, and I'm one who loves the a riverscape where the angler is not the four foremost subject, but the river itself is, I still want you to see there's actually a fisherman in the picture. There may be a highway zooming behind me, but my lens is going to be focused on making you look like you're in a wilderness area. Uh, sometimes I have to use Photoshop to crop out something, but uh, uh, a good fishing photograph to me, we're not talking about a close-up of you with your big fish, and by the way, if we are talking that, it's imperative in any photograph that I'm going to perceive as being a quality photograph of an angler that he is handling that fish in absolutely the correct way that he's that the fish is being kept wet, um, can lift it momentarily. I still like the fish's head to be in the water. Uh, I want you to be looking at the fish, not at me with a big grin. I don't want you holding the fish high and thrusting him forward to make him look bigger. I want you to be illustrating the correct way to best revive and release a fish for the fish's well-being. And any photograph, including a fish, that does not show that, I take umbrage with. A fish, even if he's lying on soft ferns on the bank, I don't want to see a fish lying down next to your fishing rod to show me how big he is. I'll make him look his real size in your photograph. Um, uh, a great photograph in fly fishing makes it look like there's no photographer there, that you're doing what you would normally, naturally, and educatedly do with a fish. It just happens to be recorded on film, but it's like the, the photographer should be the transparent part of the process. I may give you direction like... Uh, you have to look at his back, not his side, otherwise all I see is his silvery belly, and I want to see his nice, 
beautiful golden flanks with those beautiful spots on it. So I'll have you hold him more vertical to the water so so the camera sees the fish better than you're seeing him. But that's um, that's the way you would hold him anyway. You're going to hold him in his nat- natural position in the water. Hold him like no one's there and you're just by yourself admiring a fish? Uh, if I'm by myself, and no matter how fine a fish I catch, I'm not taking this photograph. I can't do it. If my one of my fishing partners is not near enough by, I, uh, last year I wrote a little review about a, a a new rod, and I used that rod and caught a particularly nice fish. And I said, "Boy, this would illustrate my review perfectly." My buddy was nowhere to be found. There was a stranger sitting on the bank uh, tying on a new tippet or something like that. I waved over to him. I said. Would you help me photograph this fish? He says, you know, I watched you land that fish. What a beauty. I'd love to help. And he came, he left his stuff on the bank and came out into the current and, and did a beautiful job of, uh, of uh, releasing the fish for me and holding my rod so that I could capture a few frames for my, my review. guy did a great job. He was a knowledgeable angler and knew how to handle a fish. I had to give him very little direction, and the images came out pretty nice. How long is too long to keep a fish maintained for a photo shoot? Uh, I think of the people, and I call them out, the people that balance rods on their shoulders and pose for things. At what point is the picture more worth the fish's life? I would say Which to me is never. I would say never. Uh, And I'm guilty of, when I was younger, I would put them out on hot, dry rocks and photograph them. When I was younger, I put them on a stringer. They ate them. (laughs) <laughs> but we don't do that anymore because we have learned that you can't have a sustainable wild trout fishery if we're going to harvest even a few. Uh, so I mentioned the ribeye steak. We release our wild fish carefully. We dine on reproducible agriculturally grown foods, whether they're plants or animals. Uh, Chickens and cattle, and even today, Atlantic salmon are grown agriculturally for food. And that's fine, I've got no problem with that. Um, It is not, we cannot have a wild trout fishery if we're going to kill, especially breeding-sized fish, it just doesn't work. There, as I said prior to this, there are so many of us. If we killed one fish each a week, uh, it has enormous impact on the fishery. If I catch a fish that has ruptured a gill during the flight and is sitting there bleeding away, and there's nothing I can do about it, I'll bonk him and eat him. Not, not going to feed him to the crayfish. Now, bonk them and eat them is a different... I think we learned that from Gyrak. It means different things in different countries. If you bonk something in the UK, you're, uh, you're giving it to them. Oh, I don't use a priest. Actually, if I, I think the kill bonk, a fish, right. I take the little Swiss Army knife out of my vest and I actually pierce his uh, the Y-shaped fusing in his skull underneath, which is his little pea brain, and I just insert the point of the knife there, and then I cut the gills and bleed them. I have that a knife to do that to snakeheads if you ever catch one again. 
easiest way to kill them is just right sever the dorsal spine. Uh, you know, it's really. I mean, bunk comes from the days when we carried a priest, a little club, mm-hmm. to bunk fish with. And it doesn't uh, work on snakeheads. It may not. It took seven uh, hits to kill one the first time we tried with uh, a metal metal bat. Uh, I have no familiarity with snakeheads, but and I have no problem with you killing them. And and this is not about we're talking trout here. Most of the trout I'm fishing for are not native fish. I'm fishing for European brown trout and Pacific Coast drainage rainbow trout in an Atlantic drainage Missouri River. These are not neither of these are native, but they're wild. Browns have been reproducing in that watershed since the middle 1880s. And they were all put in there for miners and farmers? Uh, well, originally there was a period uh, in, the, in the 80s and 90s, uh, 1880s and 90s, when fish culture was had become a very fertile and public-oriented science. And we had fish culturists in the East Coast that were in touch with fish culturists in, in uh, Europe, which is how brown trout came here to begin with. And the United States had an agent on the McLeod River who had problems with the Indians. He, had a, he built a hatchery and uh, uh, raised rainbow trout, which ultimately wound up being shipped as far away as Patagonia and Argentina and the East Coast and, and Europe. Rainbow trout are very popular fish in, in Britain and Europe. Um, you know, Alana's got to go to New Zealand coming up on a trip. New Zealand, uh, the southern hemisphere, had no native salmonidase of any kind. I, I and now they're all over the place. I mean, uh, uh, New Zealand, Australia, Argentina, uh, all have rainbows and browns and, and, and other salmonids. Uh, they have big runs of uh, Pacific salmons and, and steelhead and Atlantic salmon even in a couple of instances, um, all of which have been introduced. Uh, but even though it seems like things were relatively primitive in, in the 1800s, uh, those fish in the McLeod River Rainbow was introduced to uh, Patagonia in 1910. So we've been sending fish all over the world for a long time. But they're wild fish, and I respect them even though they are not a native species in a particular place where I may be fishing for them, they are wild and magnificent and, and as far as I'm concerned, irreplaceable. Uh, but to answer your question, in photographing a fish, the person who is the subject, who's handling the fish, has got to keep the fish in the water. If you want him to raise it up with water dripping off of him, and fire off a couple of quick frames, fine, then that fish has got to go back in the water again. He cannot be kept out of the water for more than seconds at a time, and his body is not designed to lay on hard ground or to be supported right. by his gravity gill plates or anything like that. Anything like that can cause internal damage, uh, especially on a bigger fish. Uh, they've got to be handled gently. A finger can never go in the gills. Uh, having said that, a fish properly handled supported, lifted out of the water momentarily, then kept in the water facing upstream so he's breathing, and you, the photographer, it's your responsibility to make sure you can see his gills pumping 
A fish can be held that way for many minutes. And all he's doing is being well revived. You're doing no harm to a fish by handling correctly in this way, in my opinion. And a fish that's been well photographed and been held, as I say, for a few minutes, uh, 20, 30, 40 shots have been taken of this fish. That fish, when I tell the subject to, okay, open your hands, that fish takes off like he's thoroughly revived and happy as can be. And, uh, and, and actually gently held in the water like that. They're remarkably docile. They, they're not usually uh, thrashing around trying to get away from you. Um, a knowledgeable fish handler and a photographer that is sensitive to the fish not just getting the image does very, very little harm. Once I was a guest with New York State uh, fisheries biologists and they were electroshocking one of the famous rivers in the Catskills and they had set up a they had, oh, they had this great boat with umbrella oh, there's so much fun going out on those and uh, uh, umbrella electrodes and they had set up a wire enclosed pen in the shallows along the bank where they also had set up a, a weighing and measuring station and they would shock these fish and a guy would scoop them up in the net and throw them into a uh, sort of a, uh, an aerated hold and they'd come ashore put them in this pen and they'd go out and get more and the, the couple of scientists on the shore would take them out of the pen and they would they would put them on this wooden thing and measure them sometimes they would remove a scale for a scale sample uh, and then and then do you think they held them gently in the water and released them like that? No, they took them, threw them over their shoulder back into the river and I said as an observer I said um how come you guys are always telling us to handle these fish so gently and, and, and you're just tossing them back in the water without any revival? And they said, oh, that's because you guys are hooking them and, and torturing them for a long period of time. And We're just electrocuting them. Exhausting them. them. Well, yeah, all we did is just made them float to the surface, measure them, and they're fine. <laughs> and I must say, I didn't see any of them go belly up or anything like that. So I've also, on an Atlantic salmon river in, uh, in Canada in the autumn, watched fish at a waterfall. And these salmon, magnificent of course, would leap up this waterfall and about half the time not make it. And they would fall over backwards and crash on rocks. Bouncing off of them. Bounce, run, thrash on the rock, finally get back in the water, turn around, and jump up the waterfall again and three times until they made it. And they're not the delicate little flower that we sometimes perceive them as being, which is not to say we should be squeezing their guts or putting our fingers in their gills or anything like that, but they, they're they a life form, and they wouldn't have been around for the millions of years they have been if, uh, if the slightest little uh, error in, in, in their behavior wound up killing them. Still... We're taking a big responsibility as fly fish, as catch and release fishermen, and to unhook a fish properly and revive them properly is our responsibility. If we err on the side of too much gentleness, that's good. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. 
Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Yeah, absolutely. Lee Wolf, you know, said that a wild game fish is too valuable to catch only once. And, uh, and that included Atlantic salmon, which in his day, anyone that caught a salmon killed it. Uh, he was a pioneer in catch and release, and, and thank goodness he set a great example for the rest of us that followed. And we're setting an example now for those new fellows that I keep meeting on the stream with their brand new outfits. Right. Can I get you to talk about one more subject? It's innovations. So I want to talk about sort of reinventing the mousetrap, which people are trying to do, but they don't seem to... So like the, the new H3 rod, Helios 3, it's getting a lot of, my clients keep asking me, do I really need a rod that's that expensive and people online? And I don't see, other than, you know, resins, not seeing much innovations. If, if I wanted a new fly rod, I want something that doesn't freeze up in the winter. Maybe copper guides that melt the ice as it goes through. I want to see... Now, now you're talking, we've got to, you, you just put a battery inside the real seat. And run and a run, wire run through? Run a wire up <laughs> so that you can... Absolutely. I mean, I've done some winter steel heading, and, you know, your thumb gets pretty sore popping ice out of the guides. Yeah. Uh, you could talk to Orvis about that. Uh, I have... Well, I mean, I have seen... yet to see in person an H3. I've seen its photographs, um, and I've read the... Orvis marketing hyperbole, and I, it makes me want to try it. Absolutely. Uh, as far as expensive, I believe it is $850. And today, with a Sage X being 900 a Winston Air being 950 a Loomis Asquith being 1000 for the freshwater models, more for salt, uh, rod prices have crept up. When I started in the industry, 500 was like the most expensive rod out there. And it's doubled in a little over a decade and a half. I think my first really high-quality graphite rod was my uh, first-generation Scott Graphite, 1979. And if it was $175, it was probably 150 I don't really remember, but it was under 200 bucks. It came with the reel? <laughs> right? It didn't, but I no. um, I had a nice LRH lightweight hardy reel that I think cost thirty five dollars. Um, but that's nineteen seventy dollars, and graphite rods have come a long way since then. The, the newer rods really are the best we've ever had, and, and that includes some of the mid priced ones too. Today's today's four to six hundred dollar rod is a heck of a lot better than the. $700 rods 10 years ago, which are now $900. And do you believe it's a lot more of the hand that it, the rod is in that makes a difference than the rod itself? Uh, fishermen catch fish, not fishing rods. I uh, don't think... I think that there are many a skilled angler that fishes the same rod that he's fished for the last 20 years and that doesn't even have an interest in this new Orvis rod, doesn't need it. And it's not, even if you gave him one for free, it probably will not make him catch any more fish. I think for a guy that loves casting uh, or is involved in 
highly technical compound presentation, like on the Henry's Fork, uh, can find, and I know I do find advantages in some of these new rods that are lighter, therefore there's less mass in them, which means the tip can be designed to have less uh, counterflex so that your loops are smoother and tighter and that when you make a manipulation, whether it's in the air or on the water with the tip of your rod, that is communicated through the line with greater precision than I mean, I started with a bamboo rod in the, in the, in the 60s uh, that today feels like a wet noodle if you take it out of its case and give it a shake. And I, I, I fished it on the Henry's Fork and, when I was a young man. Uh, but I'd much rather have uh, a Sage One or a Loomis NRX today than, than that rod. They perform much better. How innovative is that? As compared to the introduction of DuPont's Invention nylon in uh, was introduced at the 1939 World's Fair in New York. The NY in nylon stands for New York. Really? Um, that was an innovation. That really, I mean, I'm too young to have fished gut leaders, but I have a few in my collection. And if you had, if you're an old timer and you had to soak your gut leader in a, in a little tin with glycerin, between felt pads to get it supple enough to even make a it's knot in the thing. The thing felt like a piece of copper wire, you know, when, you, when it was dry. Uh, nylon. And those caught fish. People caught, you know, people fished with uh, leaders made out of horsehair and then silk and uh, uh, and and leaders made out of out of gut uh, and with with eyes on the old rods, green heart rods. I met an old couple once uh, on the one time I fished for salmon in Scotland. Uh, they were in their seventies then. I'm sure they're not even alive anymore. And they had these eighteen foot green heart rods that the, the butt of the rods were practically as thick as your wrist. How these old folks? These things weighed pounds, not. Now we're talking fractions of an ounce and difference in different rods. These things weighed pounds. How they wielded these monsters. They didn't have ferrules. They would, you, you, taped, you, you spliced them together and taped them up. Uh, uh, they, uh, they, we've, we have many new products, but the fact of the matter is, given a nylon leader, you could use an old bamboo rod and an old spring and Paul Hardy reel and not be handicapped as long as you don't have to use gut that was around when it was a new rod. As long as you can fish a modern fly line and a modern leader on it, you're in business. So the great innovations are probably not as much in the rod itself or the reel as it is in some of these newer synthetics. The modern fly line and, and, and monofilament or, or fluorocarbon leader is such an enormous advantage over the old natural products. There's no comparison. And the fish haven't changed. They're the same fish. The fish are the same, and uh, and they're eating the same things. And flies are getting more complex with more ingredients to them and a I lot f- more bin I, I fished some mayfly imitations. Uh, I've used synthetics in my flies for a long time. I think microfibet tails are better than hackle tails on a dry fly. Uh, there's plenty of application for synthetic rather than natural fur dubbings where, where you get a certain sparkle or, or less water absorption. Um, I mean, still, I like hackle and, and 
usually a, a natural material for the wings. But I fished some of, uh, uh, fished some totally synthetic dry flies where no feathers are fur in them at all, just plastic. Um, uh, this this summer and, and and they worked surprisingly well. They floated well, like the Jason wings. I don't. Jason I actually Steven. don't know what uh, this stuff is made of. Anyway, because these are, these are flies developed by Enrico Puglisi, who is the maestro of synthetic materials. So he comes up with stuff. Uh, and I, don't, I have no idea what its actual name really is, but he's got his 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 creative sense, and and these flies work really well. Uh, their fly tying innovation is a funny thing. Um, I've been privileged to see the flies that Frederick Holford tied to fish the chalk streams in southern England. Those the ones in the the club in New York uh, at the ang- they're on display at the Anglers Club, and these flies were sent to Gordon in the 1890s, I think. Now Gordon had uh, communicated with Holford because Holford was well-known dry fly specialist. And uh, Gordon was fascinated by the dry flies. At the time he lived on the Neversink, where he lived is now underneath the Neversink Reservoir. But he fished all the Beaver Kill and Willowemock and Neversink and all those upper Delaware watershed streams. And uh, and he and where probably the mayfly hatches then were better than they are today. So the streams were all narrower and colder than they are now. Um, but uh, he was fascinated by the dry fly, which was not popular in, in the United States at that time. So he communicated with Holford generously. He sent him a letter with all these samples. And when you look at these flies on handmade hooks, most of them with eyes, some up eyes, some straight, some down, there are extended bodies. There are slanted back wings, um, sparse hackling. I can't tell you what all the materials are. They're mostly, of course, natural materials, and some probably being English from some exotic bird that came from the millinery industry in, in, in Britain. Uh, but uh, Britain ruled the world back then, sort of, kind of. And uh, those flies look as modern as Swisher Richard's no hackles or or uh, uh, Vince Marinaro's uh, thorax duns. I mean... The, Fly tying innovation is, is a funny thing. I had a great idea once, and I thought this is Richard Franklin's signature dry fly idea. We have a rich hatch of sulfurs, ephemerella uh, uh, dorothea on the upper Delaware. We use very pale yellow rabbit dubbing. The hook is bronzed. As soon as it gets a little bit wet, that dubbing's not so pale yellow anymore the, like in a watercolor the darkness of the foundation that the material is applied to comes through and watercolor has that nice bright look because it's white paper I said ah I'm going to paint the hook shanks white and I got some bass bug white lacquer and a, a toothpick and painted the shanks careful not to get it on the eye, stuck them in a wine cork, let them dry on my timetable, and I tied my pale yellow dubbing over the white body of the fly, and it worked like a charm. They were much brighter, and 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 it achieved exactly what I wanted. And I told a friend of mine 
who's a bit of an angling historian and has a great collection of uh, books, uh, some of them American, many of them British, going back decades, uh, centuries. And uh, Dean said to me, oh, I don't remember the name of this guy, that they're Reynolds or something like that, uh, wrote a book in uh, 1810 about painting hookshanks for Atlantic salmon so that the fly would be very sparse and bright. I said, you just, it's hard to invent something. This, this guy did it, you know, a couple of centuries ago. <laughs> it's all right. You know, I always worry when people put their names on flies because it's, so, it's almost impossible to reinvent the wheel. Someone has all, almost always done something like that already. You might have a little twist on it, and, and I'm not discouraging anybody from being creative at the vice. In fact... That's how we have all the flies we have, by people being creative. It's just you probably shouldn't name it after yourself. Except for the Snow White Damsel. That's the exception. I'm going to give you that right. There we go. And, uh, and if I, and I probably wouldn't have named it after myself anyway, but I still think it was a clever idea. It's like you're not, for ichthyologists, you're not supposed to, or people in science, you're not supposed to name the organism after yourself. You're supposed to name it after where it's from, and so the name identifies what it looks like or where it's from better. And just for the record, after Gordon looked at those Hawford flies and tied his famous quill Gordon, we think of it now as an imitation for the Epurus pluralis. He didn't tie it that way. He tied big ones, little ones, and he tied them in different colors. It was a it was a design to imitate the various mayflies he was observing, not a specific mayfly. It's just been relegated by history to become this early season Epurus fly. Um, but he tied it in a bunch of different colors. I have a friend whose father, his father's passed away now, but his father's European. And uh, so my friend took his dad fishing on the uh, Bighorn River in Montana. And his father said to him, man, there's a lot of these little yellow atoms around. <laughs> so, you know, we, we associate design uh, not necessarily with a particular imitation, but uh, but yeah, innovation is a critical part of fly fishing. What were waders like when you started off? Uh, my first waders were, I mean, of course they had can- canvas bootfoot waders, but my first ones were those rubber red ball waders. Do you remember those? They were molded brown. rubber, dark brown. They one snag of a of a sharp branch, and you had a Rip flap, you had to take it to a tire repair shop and they would vulcanize a piece of inner tube over it. Uh, they, were, they were fairly fragile. Worse yet, and we're used to breathable waders today, when you took those puppies off at the end of a fishing session, man, did they stink. <laughs> Is that all your... I mean, it's rubber to begin with, which has its own kind of odor, and then it's not letting any of your perspiration or anything. And waiter farts. Out of there. So, they, yeah, they were, they were See, not inno- the best. Innovation. Have like a charcoal liner in there. Or someone needs to make a charcoal inset for your waiter farts. Uh, Spray some poopery in there. Well, long before somebody came up with that clever idea, Gore-Tex was adapted from the uh, surgical industry. It was really... Uh, originally developed as a permeable, semi-permeable membrane in, uh, to use in surgery. Um, but Gore-Tex is really a great innovation, or I say Gore-Tex as the innovative original brand. Today, you're hard-pressed to find a waiter that uses submersible Gore-Tex 
uh, Sims top of the line. I don't know how much it costs, as much as one of those new fishing rods. Um, most of our waders are made in China using uh, an imitation semi-permeable membrane. And as far as I can tell, um, they're fine. I love my Orvis Sonic Seam. I'm going on six years now, I think, with them. And if there's a hole in it, it's from a hook in my chest pocket, popped it through or something, or me sitting on something sharp, but... They've held up like no other waiter I've ever had. And I, too, have Sonic Sealed waiters. Mine are the Reddington version, which I think is the same technology, mm -hmm. made in the same so fashion. Seen the, right. Uh, and I, too, have uh, three and a half years on them now. But I tripped on a gate in Montana and fell into a pile of barbed wire. And uh, my, my fingers now healed, but the waiters aren't. So I've got about six new patches on them. Uh, but the hashes, patches are holding up so far. But uh, I'm, I'm in the market for new pair of waders. And I, and I do want them to have uh, fleece-lined hand warmer pockets. That's important mm -hmm. to me. And good suspenders. When I'm fishing with a two-handed rod, I want my hand, my other hand inside a warm pouch. Yes, I like that. Line, that would, that's ideal. I like that, too. After all, we're supposed to fish in some cool weather. We're fishing for trout. Uh, so I, I, yeah, I, I would add um, uh, semi-permeable membrane waders to the innovation list. They certainly have aided our comfort enormously. Um, I still think nylon is the single most important thing. I can't deny that I think graphite rods are superior performing instruments to, to bamboo, which doesn't mean I don't love and respect a beautiful bamboo rod and there are some great ones there are probably better bamboo rods say than ever before they're made by small independent makers for the most part um, some great bamboo rods right? hollow built and the old ones used of course uh, natural glues which would deteriorate over time now they're using all kinds of new resins to hold the bamboo together new bamboo rods are fabulous but not compared to um, from a pure performance perspective the What's being done with graphite today is just incredible. They're the best fishing rods that have ever been built here. And, and the best one yet is going to be built next year. And I don't know which the best one is because there's, uh, while I believe that there's such a thing as objective analysis in the performance of a rod, it's hard for me to make that argument because there's no numerical way to measure line speed or tip recovery or uh, uh, taper transition or any of these kinds of things that are perce perceivable but not measurable. So that frees us to all like the rod we each like the best. But I think that there are different applications for different kinds of actions and lengths and line weights. I, I personally think we've gone a little too crazy in super lightweight line weights. Uh, uh, Anything three and down, there's very little mass in a three-weight fly line. It's kind of a novelty. People love them because they uh, use them on a small stream with small fish, and it makes they think it makes the small fish feel bigger. I use a four-weight is the lightest I use, which I enjoy. But I enjoy my six-weight also dry fly fishing where when that's appropriate. Mostly I fish a five. 
If I could have a closet of Orvis five weight Henry forks, I'd be very happy. That was my that's my favorite trout rod. And you wouldn't be far wrong. And I'll, I'll tell you one last story, and this ties back to my trip to uh, Idaho and Montana this past uh, spring and summer. Um, in 1984, I replaced my first Scott eight and a half foot five weight graphite with what I thought was the best rod in the world, and it was an Orvis Western eight foot nine inch five weight, a two piece rod. Uh, like the far and fine, the sections were unequal in length, um, and that rod had a, a blend of power and tip responsiveness that I just thought was brilliant. I don't know how many of them Orvis sold because the unequal lengths made it an unpopular and they've quickly replaced it with a Western 9 foot 5 weight which would have equal lengths which I thought was tip heavy and dull but that 8 foot 9 was a brilliant rod I loved, loved, loved that rod but quite a while ago now I, I, I broke the tip and I, I've spoken to Orvis several times in fact even recently to see if there's any chance that there's a tip section for that model hidden in the back of the rod shop somewhere or if they would consider making me one and they won't they say they just don't have the they don't work in that technology any longer and they can no longer make sections for these old rods like your Henry's fork 8.5 foot 5 weight uh, I have the butt section for that rod in my office leaning against the wall sort of as a souvenir but the tip is gone so in that crowded camp at the boat ramp campsite on the Missouri, one of our neighbors is, is a fellow that I've known for many years, and he had a guest in camp, an, an elderly man, older. Well, Frank is in his early 70s. I'm 69. This guy was in his late 70s and had been out of fly fishing for a while, but was getting back into it, and he had his old rod with him. So Frank brings the guy over with his old rod, to ask me my opinion of this old rod and would it work well on the river. And he uh, put the rod in my hand and I, I chose not to look at it. I just kind of looked the other way and I gave it a shake. And with graphite rods, you don't learn much about it by giving it a shake. It's unloaded. You really have to put a line on it to get any sense of it. I will sometimes flex the rod against a carpeted floor or something like that to observe its flex profile to see where it bends even that tells you that tells you more than shaking it but you really have to cast a rod to find out anything about it but I gave this rod a shake and instantly it awoke a muscle memory in me and I said this is an old Orvis rod and I looked at it and I looked at its butt cap you know how Orvis has mm -hmm. data on there engraved in the butt cap on these older rods and uh it was the eight foot nine Western five weight, my old favorite rod from a long time ago, and uh, which gave me a, a jolt of a thrill. I said, you know, I haven't felt this rod in so long, and I, I remember it like yesterday. It was a wonderful rod, great rod for this river. Let's let's string it up and cast it. There's, there's a lawn there in camp, and the guy put his reel on, strung it up, and I took a cast, and it felt horrible. It was so numb and dull and clunky. I said, what kind of line is this? Oh, um, the guy at my fly shop at home is a real expert. 
uh, said this would be the perfect line for this rod in this river. It's a, it's a six-weight such-and-such. This was not a rod that wanted to be overlined when it was new. And remember that in the early 80s, a weight-forward five-weight line had a 30-foot head. And then the rear taper going to the very thin running line could have been three or four feet. What we can call a conventional weight forward line. Not that many of them are made anymore. Today, our heads are longer. We have attenuated rear tapers, which is a great thing because it eliminates hinging where we go from thick line to thin line. I think any dry fly line of any, from any branch should have a, a long rear taper. I'm talking... 15 to 25 feet of rear taper. Uh, so on those early Orvis rods that were designed for a lighter five weight than today's five weights generally are, I like to underline them by a half size. So a real gold that is a 0.4 heavy line, I pulled out my reel that had a, a four weight gold on it, put it on his five weight rod, the rod came alive and was a charm to cast. I sent them to one of the three fly shops in town to go buy one. Uh, but it's amazing the difference a fly line makes. But that, that, that was sort of a sentimental moment for me uh, in camp, which I think is a good place for us to, uh, to stop since we're talking about innovation. There's a 30-something-year-old rod that compares favorably to plenty of new ones today. That's right. That's but it needs a new fly line. That's right. All right, Richard. Uh, I guess we'll see you at the new Somerset location. Right, at the, at the uh, Jersey Convention Center. They say it's much bigger and ten times as much parking. Hopefully it's brighter inside, too. I just don't know that we'll have Sophie's Bistro to go to over there. Indeed. I do a nice... Thank you, Rob. Nice steak. All right, signing off. Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com. Cooper, host of Hunt Stand's Make Your Mark podcast. If you haven't already, download the free Waypoint TV app to listen to our podcast and watch the original films from Hunt Stand Presents anywhere, anytime, and on any device. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, a mule there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.